This is Revelation 22, 16 through 21. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to bear witness to all of you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes let the one who wishes receive life-giving water as a gift. Now I bear witness to everyone who hears the word of the prophecy contained in this scroll. If anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues that are written in this scroll. If anyone takes away from the words of this scroll of prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this scroll. The one who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. Who likes surprise endings? You can raise your hand. This is participatory, right? Like you love to be completely shocked at the outcome. You didn't even see it coming. You're, you probably like horror movies too because you like to jump, you know? Who hates surprise endings? I, I see that hand, right? <coughs> yeah, like it fills you with nervousness to think that something is coming and something's going to be sprung on you. Someone's going to jump out. Most recently famous for like surprise twist in movies is like M. Night Shyamalan movies, right? Do you, do you know these movies? Sixth Sense, Signs, The Village, my favorite is Unbreakable. But after a while you get like, controversial, right, Will? Um, after a while you kind of get like twist fatigue when you watch these movies because you, you know that a surprise ending is coming. So you kind of get distracted from the beginning and the middle because you, you just know the end is going to subvert it all anyways, right? Sometimes life imitates art with this too. Like think about the, the twist while we're talking about movies that happened at the Oscars last year. They were getting ready to announce Best Picture. This is like the crowning award for a prestigious evening. And it comes time and the presenters reel through the list of movies and they show the little package they have of a little clip and they zoom in on the directors and the whole team and they're really nervous sitting there like this win could be huge it could it could kind of solidify your career and be like your crowning achievement feather in your cap or it could be the launching pad for a young director towards making the kind of movies with the type of stars they've always dreamed of right so last year, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway took turns reciting the category finalists before announcing the winner. And they said, and the winner of Best Picture is La La Land. And everyone cheered and everyone jumped up, only it wasn't. <laughs> it was Moonlight. This picture is the La La Land director, Jordan Hurwitz, holding up the card that says in boldface, all caps, Moonlight. Somehow they got the cards mixed up. <laughs> this is one of those times when knowing the ending could have produced a whole lot less stress for Moonlight and a whole lot less disappointment for La La Land if they had just known how it was really supposed to go. So today we conclude our summer series on the Spirit throughout all of Scripture, and we end appropriately with the end. The very final verses of the Bible 
which Sarah just read, and we get to know the ending. Even as we live and move and have our being in the middle with access to the spirit that guides us on the way. This sort of timing really matters. It really matters for our our vision of flourishing, of like how we live a good life both here and now and then and there. And we always start with the end in mind. I hope this doesn't just seem like hypothetical. Like this is really practical stuff, right? Like when you start to build a house, you begin with the end in mind. But this is also kind of how our our emotions and our psyches and our worldviews work. Like I'm not just up here like telling you some cool facts about the end of our Bible that you can kind of take or leave. Like this is really central to what it means to be a Christian. Consider the very real ways that this shapes our worldview, what we're expecting in the end. Consider how our worldview shapes our hopes for how the world works and who's in charge. Consider how our hopes shape our politics and how our politics shape our words and our deeds with real people and real bodies which hunger and hurt, which image God and groan for redemption with the rest of creation. So I think there's a couple different views that, that kind of show this, and these are pretty popular. Like, these are views that might even be in this room, right? There's like a pessimistic view, which is always kind of looking in the rearview mirror, and kind of hoping backwards for the good old days. Like, I can't believe how bad things have gotten, maybe even in my lifetime, maybe even just in this last couple years. We just need to go back. We need to go back to 1980 or 1950, or 1910, or 1776, or 1492, or 306, or 50 AD, or something. Pick your time to go back to. And, and maybe the only thing that's good about right now is things will get bad enough that it'll like tip the scale over for God to do something, for God to come and save us. So we might not even know that we, we think or hope this, but we hope that things get bad enough and it'll trigger God to act. Something will happen that is tra- like drastic and just. Like, maybe not drastic like a flood because God said he wouldn't do that again, but something like that. Turn back the clock, wipe the slate clean, start from scratch. It's pretty pessimistic. <laughs> or maybe there's the other side of that coin, which is like this optimistic way of looking at the world. And these optimists, we have our head cocked upward and onward. We're confident in progress. We want to like bend that long arc of history towards justice, right? And in the meantime, we want to rely on people to work together because if we just had a little more knowledge or technology or resources or structures, it would all get better. Yes, we can because we're exceptional. Never before in history have people had the kind of knowledge or insight that we have now. We can build the city of God brick by brick if we just work together. The problem with either of these views is that they each contain some truth and some of the good news, but the real problem is that they're not true or good enough. That they're like just barely sub-Christian. They're both kind of agnostic about God's vision of the future shown to us in John's revelation, of which we just read the end of. And neither can really account for the major moments of God's redemptive story, the, the incarnation, the cross, 
the resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit. A famous bishop and missiologist, Leslie Newbegin, they, they once asked him if he's feeling optimistic or pessimistic, and he kind of quipped, I'm neither an optimist or a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. <laughs> Way to change the, change the subject. This is kind of like a Jesus answer, right? But I think that's the key, starting with the ending. Neither an optimist or pessimist, Jesus has risen from the dead. And that changes the whole terrain because never before has someone risen from the dead, so now the world works differently. Now we rely on the Spirit to preview. Last week we had some of the moves of the Spirit, that the Spirit is going to preview what the kingdom of God looks like and allow us to join in with him to live this kind of back-to-the-future sort of way. Like, how would you live if you already knew the ending? Like, knew it in your bones. Like, were filled with the ending in your lungs. Like, the ending became the water you swam in and the filter through which you saw every event in history, good or bad. You can see there's no room for optimism or pessimism. We're not moving along some timeline. Jesus is risen from the dead by the Spirit of God. What fear would that cast out in you? What risk would you then take if you knew the ending? What stressors would then become completely obsolete? What relationships might be opened up and opened out because of this bigger and more robust view of what God has done and is doing to reconcile the world to himself? So when we say that the move of the Spirit is to preview means that we start with the end. Not just in mind, but also in our spirits and in our bodies. Like Romans 8 says, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He, raised, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because it is his spirit who lives in you. Or Ephesians 1 puts it another way. This is what God planned at the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things of earth. We've also received an inheritance in Christ. We're destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we are the first to hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, which is applied toward our redemption as God's people, resulting in God's glory. This inheritance in Christ is, is like an invitation into God's heaven and earth coming together. And this bridging and this reconciling runs straight through, that line runs straight through each and every one of us. In the Spirit, we each get to be like little microcosms of this macrocosmic movement of God's salvation. God reconciling the world to himself. God reconciling us to, to God. So then you're with Jesus, you're in Jesus, and you get to work all this stuff out ahead of time now. 
because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection have saved the world, have saved us. We get the down payment of this salvation. The result is God gets glory, spreading in us and through us, like overflowing into the world. So this makes us like people of the future. Uh, this sermon's getting real science fiction really fast, I know. Like, this new creation impinges back on the old, and people of the resurrection, like, invade the land of death with the future. So, again, don't let your imaginations get too far ahead of you. Like, this future doesn't have hoverboards or jetpacks, you know? Like, it doesn't even have, like, sports gambling like Back to the Future 2 does, you know, if you went back from the future. But if you ask what our present future participation should look like, shockingly, but not all that surprising, the standard Sunday school answer applies. What it looks like to live the future in the present looks like Jesus. Like, it's good. We, we shouldn't chide our kids for always answering Jesus when you ask them a Sunday school question. Most of the time it's Jesus. We just have to figure out how to work that out. You should look and act like Jesus. After all, Christian, the word Christian, before it became like an adjective for things that were kind of Xeroxes of Xeroxes or things like a little past their sell-by date, Christian was a noun that meant little Jesus's, little Christ, a bunch of different looking people kind of like refracting Christ's presence into their little parts of the world. This means following Jesus's footsteps. It means walking in Jesus's ways. John's gospel would say it means believing into him. Jesus was there. Jesus is our prototype of a new humanity. He's the, like, the already there one who's come back to pull us with him. So speaking of, of the future and feet and walking, I came across this uh, quotation this week when I was thinking about what it, what it might mean like to, to be the sort of future people. And, and the author Jonathan Martin says, foot washing is perhaps the most futuristic practice of the church though not many people really believe that. Most Christians think they're being cutting edge and futuristic when they have like busy graphic presentations running on a Mac during worship time. Removing our, our, shows, our shoes, it should say, before one another is a jarring practice even for church people. It's like listening to Radiohead in the 1950s. The gospel of the, hu of the new humanity is that there will be a resurrection of the, is not that there will be a resurrection of the spirit, but that there will be a resurrection of the body by the spirit. And so we get in on this little open secret now by touching bodies, by being bodies in, in which God's glory dwells. This is like a really great uh, image of the spirit's work listening to Radiohead in the 50s, simply by joining Christ in tying an apron around your waist, grabbing a towel, and serving someone else by washing their feet. Something really meaning, like menial, something kind of gross and visceral. Like we have, we have kind of an inordinate number of farmers in this congregation 
and their feet, man, like this would really put us to the test, right? Our Revelation text, though, gives us, sorry, guys. That'll be like the main comment that I'll get on a sermon in 2018 is all these people being like, why are you talking about my feet? Our, re- our revelation text, if, if that image doesn't work for you, our revelation text gives us a handful of other kind of like focal images to, to look forward to. Like these images kind of rise up kaleidoscopically from our text and they call us to imagine and to enact. So, so like the first image and what Sarah read, and this is kind of in the whole of the latter part of Revelation, it's this image of the river and of the tree. And I think Marcus and the band did an amazing job of kind of adding their own commentary on the image of the river. So I'll focus a little on the tree. This is from the beginning of Revelation 22 chapter. So it's then an angel showed me the river of life giving water, shining like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. The tree's leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. So as we sang together, the river is this, is this entryway into the promised land. We cross over the Jordan River. It's this place where Christ identifies with us in baptism and God's spirit hovers over him and the heavens open and it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is the place where the thirsty go to freely get water. Think of like Isaiah um, 55, come to the waters, come. Come all who are thirsty. This is, this is also a river because we're told in Revelation that there's no more sea. <laughs> if we're going to choose bodies of water, we're getting rid of the, the sea, which, which represents squalor and threat and chaos, and we're keeping the river because now there's directionality and there's purpose. This is a river of life giving water. And then the tree. And I, I most love this picture of the tree. This is a painting, and you can go see it at Duke. It's up, and it's like strangely available for you to get really close to. This is by a painter named Bruce Herman, who's a friend of the church, um, called a Riven Tree. And I wish you could see it a whole lot better, because the panels really tell the story of the tree. The bottom panel with the skull and the serpent represents this country of death and sin and greed. And then the, the left panel shows God's sustaining work through this tree in history. The right panel, the, the fire, the, the burning bush that is burning but won't be consumed. And then this eruption up top, this, this Isaiah 11 tree shoot out of the stump of Jesse in the new creation. And then running through the whole thing is this metallic, beautiful, almost like laser beam strip that represents Christ, the tree of life in which we go to for healing. The, in this tree, we, we get stability, we get shelter, we get healing and transformation and beauty. The, its leaves will be for the healing of the nations. I also think of this other uh, art piece 
called the Tree of Life, and this comes from uh, Mozambique, and this was made in 2005, and I hope you can, you can see it okay. It was, it was conceived of their, their bishop, and it includes about 600,000 weapons that used to be used for a war that they didn't fund, but certainly participated in and killed each other in. And these, the, the bishop had this vision of these weapons being, you know, like swords turned into plowshares. You, you can put a detail up, you can see all these weapons. And, and I think kind of the, the, the coolest and kind of most gratuitous detail you can't see in either of these pictures, but down at the foot, there are these little, these little animals, these little creatures that then inhabit this new thing, this new tree. Uh, there's one more detail on that. You can see like this little lizard also made out of these things. So you can see that the spirit in this image allows us to image and to imagine beauty and healing and hospitality even now. To, to be a part of God's converting something that used to be used for violence and used to be used to close off into something that can be used for thriving and flourishing and growing and opening up, even now. Another image we get in, in Revelation that's so rich and it's so wonderful for this season that we're currently in is the, is the image of the wedding feast. Um, this is from Revelation 19. And I heard something like a huge crowd, like rushing water, powerful thunder. They said, Hallelujah, the Lord our God, the Almighty, exercised his royal power. Let us rejoice and celebrate and give him the glory, for the wedding day of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. She was given fine, pure white linen to wear, for that fine linen is the saints' acts of justice. Then the angel said to me, Write this, favored are those who have been invited to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. For all the imagery of like cosmic conflict between good and evil and judgment and the apocalyptic rending of the world as we know it, it might be surprising that the world actually ends with a wedding feast. Though like in doing some premarital counseling, I know that there are, is a lot of cosmic conflict happening in planning a wedding feast and normal weddings. But it's really awesome, uh, specifically as we talk about living this future big reality in the now in small ways because we have so many people in our midst who are, who are in the season or entering the season. Like I'm looking out at like Nate and Anna and Will and Taylor uh, I spoke on Skype to Brian and Elizabeth from Jordan yesterday are, are so excited and getting ready for this. And even Alexandra and Sindel, I don't know if I was allowed to announce that, but I am. Uh, and, and so we're so excited that we get to, to participate in this reality in like real small ways, in, in ways that we, we rejoice with and join in this feasting and celebration. In the end of the world, there is this huge crowd of all kinds that gathers to bear witness and make noise at this royal wedding. Like these people are like craning their necks to see the prepared bride, which is the church, ready for her groom. In the fine linen, what her dress is made out of are the saints' acts of justice. That's how she gets ready. 
you ever seen a bride get ready and she's surrounded by her bridal party? It takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of intention and a lot of joy to get ready. And this picture, that readiness is happening by the saints, us, these holy ones, acts of justice. Again, this kind of complicates those two dueling worldviews, optimists or pessimists, about our inherent badness or goodness that makes way for Christ's coming. Because it's neither, it's, it's neither of those, but it's rather our work in the spirit that participates in God's justice and anticipates God like reigning in full. And boy, at this wedding, there will be feasting. I would love to know, we don't get all the details about the caterer for this wedding, but man, this is that long-awaited feasting in the house of Zion, which we sing about. This, this foretaste, uh, the feasting of the spirit that opens up to us whenever we're gathered around this table or our potluck tables or, or like the lousiest fast food table, we, we are opened up to this reality because of the presence of Jesus. I think of Professor Grace Yi Soon Kim, who speaks of growing up in an immigrant church that featured a lot of these sorts of tables. Hers was Korean. And she says that the immigrant church is like a familiar home that they're able to eat together and share love for food of their motherland. They eat kimchi and enjoy like really garlicky odor of the fermented spiced cabbage that they have to hide from the outside world, but together they enjoy it. And says it's Church for her was a place to learn the Korean language and culture and to make friends. Um, it, it helped them attach to social agencies to find employment and get advice on how to live in this world together. The church gave newcomers, Korean newcomers, a place for protection and safety from like the harsh realities of immigration and racism and xenophobia. And as a child, she grew to love the people of the church. It was a place to see people who looked like her. And at school, while, even while she remained an oddity, like she was teased ceaselessly for looking unfamiliar at, at this feast, at these tables, at this pre-wedding feast. She was known, and she was loved, and she was cared for, and she was included, and she was fed. This is what that feast is for us. So by the Spirit, the Spirit allows us to feast even now. It, the Spirit draws us into unity with others, with each other, and into union with Christ even now. Spirit brings about joy even when maybe the outside world is pressing down upon you. Joy for others to experience, to taste and see that the Lord is good even now. And most often this happens with real food. So we invite you to the table after Pollock. It's not just a tag on, it's it, it's part of the thing. The third image in this revelation is the image of the holy city. The holy city coming down, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 says, I saw new heaven and a new earth. The former heaven and the former earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Then I saw a holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Look! God's dwelling is here with humanity. He will dwell with them and they'll be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There won't be mourning, crying, or pain anymore. And the former things will have passed away. 
Come, he says, I'll show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And then, I love this little detail, it says, he took me in a spirit-inspired trance to a great high mountain and showed me this holy city, like gave him this panoramic overview coming down from heaven. And then we get all of these amazing details about all of the jewels and all of the aesthetics of this city. We get distances and like lengths and widths and heights. We get details about this, these golden gates and pearl um, that, and the gold is so pure that you can see through. It's like translucent gold and all of this is ethereal and wild. And then, and then we're told the detail of all these things, of all these or- ornaments and, and things in the city, I didn't see a temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. This picture of the New Jerusalem adorned coming down, like decorated coming down, not, uh, you know, a lot of the picture we've grown up with, maybe if we're in the church, is like us naked going up. This picture is the city clothed coming down. We see the end in this. And in the end, the physical world's not like, annihilated or thrown away like some hopeless trash, but it's recreated and it's flooded with the presence of the God who made it. The physical world is flooded with the presence of God. Sometimes the the Spirit's generous work is to give us, in the meantime, to give us like good things that act as placeholders and signs for like the best things. I think that's why in here, like the, we're, we're told that the sun and the moon will be no more, there's no more sea. Like all these things that we're so used to, like no more sea. I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. I know how to tell direction because I just have to keep the ocean on my east side that is always east. I know forever if I'm going north and south, I have no idea how I'm going to get around in the new heavens and new earth. Right? But the best thing that the Bible can imagine, the best gift of the Spirit the best gift the Spirit can afford is God's own presence. All these good things pale in, cons- in comparison to the best thing, God's presence. The sea and the sun and the moon and the temple and the lamp all fade in light of the Lord and the Lamb. And the Spirit makes all this happen. The Spirit like, shows us this still frame of the ending and calls us to like, have it burned on the back of our minds, like this indelible image, and live that in the present. This is like having a foretaste, like literally enough to just like, make you more hungry, to whet your appetite. Like, it, it's, that, like, uh, it's almost that like, obnoxious phenomenon of when you like, eat one chip and then your breath really smells bad, right? Uh, and it makes you nuts because it's like, well, I, I need more. I need more. I might as well have more, and I need more. It, it makes us impatient because it's not enough. It pulls us into the future. So we hope and we live and we pray, come Lord Jesus. We, we lean in and we ask Jesus to come back. 
The other part of this image is try to imagine a city without sin. Like the city is like long been kind of either romanticized as like the place where things happen, like all the songs about New York City, the city that never sleeps. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Or the city has been like demonized, villainized as like shorthand for, for crime and unsafety. But this new final city will be neither. The city's chief character, character, characteristic is that God is there. That's the main thing you need to know about the city, that God is there. The sheer fact that we're given such amazing and gaudy detail about how it looks and feels means that God redeems not human abstractions, but rather people and places in like communal and cultural realities. Like there's going to be stuff there too. <laughs> God is there and there's going to be stuff. That's shorthand for this sermon, right? But I think this is also like instructive for us, right? Like instructive for maybe like how we work to treat people with dignity now. Like people who are sinful like us. Maybe people whose sin is more blatant and obvious to see. Like you can, you can say like you, you matter full stop and God is making you new. I matter and God is making me new. I'm not there yet, but I'm here, right? And so, like, pulling this tension between, between God's interest in our physical uh, reality and God's um, newness that he can only describe in, in these crazy kaleidoscopic ways helps us both value people as they are and call them into this movement of the Spirit to make them new. This should spur us in our lives connected to real people in real places because the Spirit allows us to invest hopefully in our real city now. Like we pray for and work the Spirit's transformation in the smallest possible kind of zones and increments like our immediate neighbors and our block and our coworkers. Bringing New Jerusalem down to our, our immediate neighbors, our block, and our co-workers. Because a heavenly city means that we'll have neighbors. You, did you notice that? This is not a heavenly suburb coming down. It's not a heavenly rural five-acre plot coming down. This is a heavenly city, which means you probably have someone above you, on either side of you, and maybe below you, near to you, proximate, in your face. And it means that if we're going to pay attention to these signs and don't get distracted of what they point to, that this God that they point to, that means that in all of that proximity and nearness, that God is trying to be proximate and near to us, even now. Even as we wait for like a great reunion where, when the veil will be pulled away and we'll see it all in full. Finally, our passage, the whole of Scripture closes with this simple prayer, come Lord Jesus. Like, I think if you're, if you're praying this prayer right, it kind of gets caught in your throat a little bit. Come, Lord Jesus. You can pray that the way you breathe over and over. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Like, this is the ideal prayer for those times when, like, most politicians are tweeting, like, generic thoughts and prayers. We should be praying under our breath, come, Lord Jesus. 
Because after all, this is our future hope. This is our present hope. This is our only hope that Jesus will come and judge righteously and renew all things. So life in the Spirit is a life in which everything God is waiting for us in. Will you join with God's Spirit today? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we thank you for previewing God's good future for us. And we thank you that that future (laughs) bends the rules of time as we know it and and comes back on us even now. Calls us into that future and, and, and makes way for that future in our lives. Make us courageous, make us creative as we join in God's making things new as we live into our lives in Christ, as we're filled with the Spirit and as we bring about God's praises. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.